Welcome to the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Smelser. The Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast is the shared journey of building a real estate investment property business from square one. Join me as we learn together how to conquer the real estate game to reach financial freedom. Together, we will learn from people in all areas of real estate and business in our personal trek towards escaping the rat race. Be you. Do the work you love. Play the long game. Before we get started, I wanted to ask that you check out my book, Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals. The book was written to document my process of building my investment portfolio from square one, and I think this could really benefit you as well. The book has gotten five-star reviews so far, which I'm really proud of. You can find the book on Amazon in either physical or Kindle format, as well as any other book retailer. Check it out. What's up, folks? It's Josiah with the Daily Real Estate Investor Podcast, bringing the heat with another great episode for you today. Today, I've got Sarah Brandenberger out of Middlebury, Indiana. Sarah is on Instagram at Nerds Guide to FI. You may be familiar with her under that handle. But uh, we're going to talk about real estate and financial independence today. And Sarah is going to share her story on you know, managing her family at the same time as pursuing financial independence and knocking it out of the park uh, on how she's leveraging real estate to reach her financial independence goals. Um, Sarah's got five doors and has made massive progress uh, on this FI journey. And uh, we're going to talk about what her goal is to reach FI and how she plans to get there. And I really think this is going to resonate with a lot of you who are also pursuing financial independence. Uh, Sarah's a lot of fun to talk to. She's got a great personality, great presence on Instagram. And I know you're really going to enjoy this episode. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and have a rotten time. What's up, Daily Real Estate Investor followers? Today, we've got Sarah Brandenberger from Middlebury, Indiana. Yeah. (laughs) And she can be found on Instagram at Nerds Guide to FI. Puts out a lot of awesome content on financial independence and retiring early. And Sarah, I'm super pumped to have you. Welcome. I'm very excited. And we have similar kind of core backgrounds. So this should be a fun chat we have today together. Yeah. <laughs> I think we both we both grew up on Dave Ramsey a bit. So this will yeah. be fun. And we then fell off the deep end when it came to real estate. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So my wife and I are big Dave Ramsey fans up until the point that he talks about buying real estate in cash. And we can get into that. But uh, we we pursued getting out of debt with everything that we had. Um, after we got married, first thing we did was pay her car off, got rid of our remaining student loans. And then, and I always wanted to do that because I thought, you know, student loan or um, car debt, you're, you're owning something, you're paying interest on something that's going down in value. I just know that's not smart. And I know you have to have a car a lot of times to get to work and stuff. And some people are able to ride their bike to work. I think that's awesome. If I tried, if my wife tried to ride her bike to work, it's, it's over a mountain and, you know, 30 minutes away. I don't know that riding her bike would work well with that, but you know, we sold more expensive cars, went down and bought less expensive cars in cash. And that really helped us a ton with speeding up this whole process. So getting rid of student loan debts also, also often difficult for people because some people come out of college with a hundred thousand dollars or more of student loan debt. And it's just like a shackle on them. They can't get rid of it. 
Um, so we pursued getting rid of that with reckless abandon, got rid of that too. But after we got rid of all our debt, that allowed me to really pursue this real estate investing game, hardcore. And Sarah puts out a ton of great information on Instagram uh, at Nerds Guide to FI. Go give her a follow because this stuff's really going to motivate you. And Sarah, I'd love to hear your story and how you got into this whole thing and give us some tips and tricks on what you're doing. But let's start with, you know, your family. You're, you're married and have kids, correct? Yes. So I'm married and we have a one-year-old. And so, yeah, cool. so she keeps us busy. She's walking all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Had her first birthday. So. Yeah. That's awesome. So there's no excuses, right? I mean, just because you have little kids, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, being married, having little kids, it's not an excuse to not be financially responsible. It, it does get more challenging because you've got kids in diapers. That's expensive. Uh, we've got three children, still got one in diapers, man. Diapers cost a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. It's still not quite as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. People really make it a big deal, but I don't know. Sure. I just feel like if you're determined to do it, no matter what, you figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So let's dive into your story. I really like overestimated how hard it was to like renovate houses with kids because we DIY'd so much of it. And I'm like trying to paint and she's like in like a, one of those, you know, essentially like the pouch thing you wear. So I had a few different, <laughs> like a Tula carrier and like she had paint on her head and I'm like, this is a disaster. So <laughs> there's definitely more limitations with kids, but it's still yeah. possible. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome that you're doing that. You're taking your kid over there and still working on the property and stuff. Yeah. So let's dive, dive into your story. I want to hear how you, how you got into this whole, this whole financial independence retire early bit. Yeah. So we started out Dave Ramsey people because we just had a ton of debt. And at that time, my husband was really wanting to quit his job that he didn't enjoy. And we were kind of tied to it because of the amount of debt we had. And it was a high paying job. And so we started to get really frustrated with the fact that debt was kind of making our life decisions for us. And I thought that was just ridiculous that you know, we had racked up so much, essentially mostly in car debt. So I'm like a really huge advocate for not having car payments of any kind. Love it. Because we had so much car debt. And then like a car would break down and we're like, oh, we'll finance something like big and fancy and safe. And instead of taking like the good route of doing like the three-year-old, like 2014, 2015, like reliable low mile car, we went out and bought new. And it was just like one of the biggest mistakes we've made, but we learned a ton from it. And so that's really how we got started. And then um, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was like never really a reader, so which is weird because I have like a couple of master's degrees, but I think it that sucked out all of the reading and then I didn't read for fun. Um, and so uh, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, was hooked. And then I read um, Set for Life by Scott Trench. He's one of the bigger pockets people. Yep. And so that book was really a game changer as well, where I started thinking about... Um, you know, paying off debt came pretty easy. It was slow, but it was pretty simple. And I kind of started looking at, well, what's next after this? Because we've already proven that we can save over half our income. And I don't want to just start blowing it again when we're done. And so like super saving and things didn't make a lot of sense. And then I really like the idea of, you know, what you own personally covering your living expenses. So, you know, like financial independence, like I've heard people toss around the definition of saying, you know, you live off of your own personal resources. And so I'm like, well, that's kind of like the ultimate, like, I don't have anything tying me down. So we've kind of moved away from debt tying us down. And now we're like, okay, what if we weren't even attached to jobs or anything like that? And so I kind of, you know, got a little crazy in the whole, like reading everything on fire and going through like the Mr. Money Mustache blogs and forums and all that. And um, then 
And fire seems so slow. That was the other thing. So that's how we got to real estate was, um, I just realized that super saving like 50 to 80% sounded really boring. And it was going to take us 10 years when I ran like a little calculation. I'm like, that sounds terrible. How can I do it faster? And that's how we hit real estate. <laughs> that's awesome. So what are yeah. your master's degrees in? Curious. Um, I have a master's in genetic counseling and then an MBA. Cool. So, I have my MBA as well. You said nice. the first was in what? Genetic counseling. Genetic counseling. Wow. Yeah, what, what, so, what, is, like, what do you do in genetic counseling? Um, well, I worked with patients for about five years. And so I did a lot of oncology and a lot of high-risk pregnancy. And so a lot of, oh, wow. um, like if someone has like a family history of breast cancer, I would mm. talk to them about like their risks and if they wanted testing and if they had like different prevention options that would be better for their family, given the history that was there. And so kind of taking what's going on in a family and trying to help them understand what's going on and how you can be proactive with your health. Yeah. Um, and then now I work for a genetic testing company because it kind of gave me the flexibility that I needed to do what I'm doing now. Wow, um, cool. And so I work for a company that does pregnancy, um, like genetic screening. So if okay. people like have findings on ultrasound or they want to know if like a, his, a condition's in their family and they want testing for it, they yeah. have some options. So, so yeah. I'm assuming you're, you're going in and working you're not working from home, correct? I am working from you, home. You are working from home. Yeah. Cool. Now, and is your husband working from home as well? No, he okay. still works his um, job that he didn't like from the beginning. He okay. took like a brief hiatus and he's back there now. Okay. <laughs> so. I always think that question is relevant because, you know, there, there are some, there are some benefits to be had from working from home when you're yes. pursuing financial independence, because, you know, while you guys have properties you're working on right now, it allows yeah. you some flexibility to kind of deal with some of that stuff. Um, here and there as you're getting your work done. Whereas if you're sitting at an office in a cubicle, your boss is looking over your shoulder the whole time. It's harder to mess with that stuff, even though it can still be done. But I'm always interested in that, that little nuance of the whole story. So um, you, you know, you followed a similar path, I think, to a lot of us with Rich Dad, Poor Dad really lighting your fire mm -hmm. and um, fire, not, uh, no pun intended, right? Um, <laughs> right. But, but uh, and Dave Ramsey too. Dave Ramsey's been very inspirational to a lot of people. I love how many people he's helped with his, his show. And, um, my sister and brother-in-law live in Nashville and we drive by financial peace plaza coming in. Oh, nice. I'm always like Dave Ramsey's up there. So, mm -hmm. um, but that's super cool. So, so let's talk. Okay. I, I wanted to ask one question before we really dive oh, yeah. into this. Like you said, buying that new vehicle was a huge mistake. Why was <laughs> that a huge mistake? Well, we were underwater on it right away, which just sucks. And then just digging yourself back out of that hole is terrible because I think it was like $47,000 and you're underwater on it so far. And so it yeah. took us about a year of just focusing on that particular debt to get out of that truck. Sure. And so it was just, it was very frustrating to see the value of that item fall faster than we were able to pay. And, you know, it kind of leveled off after the first year, but man, that depreciation hit on the first year was like, 30%, which is pretty normal. Um, yeah. If you Google so let, it, your let, yeah, let, let's card talk appreciates about, 30%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about why you were underwater on it immediately. Like right. some people, some people are, are new to this whole financial independence thing and are just kind of living like everyone else does. Why, right. why is your car, why, why were you underwater so quickly? 
Um, okay. So you're, you buy your car and it's worth, so we buy it for say 47, $48,000 and you drive it off the lot. And there's about a 15%, like 10 to 15% depreciation, if not more right away when you drive it home. And so if I were like, Oh my gosh, I've made the biggest mistake ever. You can't return a car. So you're like, I'm going to sell it today and get out of this car loan. And then you go to sell it and they're like, Oh, well, it's only worth $20,000 if you want to sell it now. Or, I mean, I'm just giving an example, but it'd yeah, be worth yeah. I think probably like 25, 23, somewhere in that range. And so you're like, um, my loan says 28,000, but you're only going to give me 22,000. There's mm-hmm. this gap. And so that gap is you owe more on it than it's worth now. Yeah, and yeah. all you did was drive it home. Yeah. So how long <laughs> did you ridiculous. keep this? How long did you keep this vehicle before you got rid of it? Oh, probably a year and a half. And then when you went to get rid of it, how mu- how underwater on it were you? Or would you, how much were you able to get out of it? We, oh man, I can't remember. Um, okay. So we took out, so we bought it and then we paid it down until we were underwater on it. And then we paid it off, um, by selling it. So we did it the old fashioned way. So sometimes Dave Ramsey, there's two ways to get out of underwater on a car. If you're sitting there saying it's me, one is you go to the bank and you say, Hey, I'm underwater on a car this amount of debt, like this eight grand gap is already unsecured debt because the bank can't like sell your asset and get that money back. So you ask them, would you an unsecured loan for the 8,000? We took route B and said, we're going to just like cover our own gap and get out of it when we're done. And so we started paying down debt until, or paying on the vehicle until we were not underwater on it. And then we sold it and we applied that cash. I think we sold it for... I honestly can't even remember. I'm sure I have a post on it a while back, but it was cool. not, it was a little depressing. Like in yeah, the sure, 20,000 sure. range. I had, I had one For some reason, 27,000s in my head, but I feel like that still might be high. Gotcha. Yeah. I had a similar experience. Um, before I got really, before I got really serious about being out of debt, investing in real estate, I bought a truck because I always wanted a, a nice truck. I was making great income. Bought a truck, didn't have any other debt, went and bought this thing, was really happy with the truck. But then I started thinking about, you know, what I was costing myself opportunity cost wise. This was, this was a long time ago, but I immediately thought, Mm -hmm. man, it's like a year into it. I was like, I got to get rid of this thing. I got to get rid of this thing and throw money, you know, towards paying off student loans and other things. And, um, went back to the place that I bought it from and was like, Hey, I just bought this from you guys. There's hardly any miles on it. You know, buy it back from me. And they did this, you know, they did what you're saying. They offered me almost like it was, it was shockingly, it was a good bit less than what I paid for it. And mm-hmm. I, I ended up selling it on my own to make more out of it, but definitely lost money on the whole thing. And it was one of those like situations where I was like, I knew better and I got burned by this never again. You know what I mean? So yes. I think that's an important lesson for everyone to learn. And if you have a car right now that's bleeding you and you want to invest in real estate, you want to become financially independent you know, get, get something in cash that's paid for. So you can start putting your investment dollars towards something that's going to really work, work for you. You know? So I think that's something that can really make a positive impact on your fire, you know, your fire pursuit. Right. All right. So, so let's talk about, let's talk about kind of how you guys have approached this and what your goal is. What is your, what is your financial independence retire early goal? Um, so right now, since we're doing it through real estate, so Traditionally, fire people do like the 25 or the rule of 25 or like you multiply um, your 
like ideal amount by this number, but we're doing it with real estate. And so we really focus on like monthly income need because I think that makes the most sense with real estate and rentals. And so right now we're trying to get to $3,000 a month because that would really cover our like core living expenses and some like bare bones. So we're not like having a lot of fun going on fancy vacations, but at least what we would take to live would be paid for. And so that's what we're working towards right now. I think comfortably I'd want to be at like six to $10,000 a month so I can kind of do what I would like to do most months and not worry about it. Sure. Um, but 3000 is our current goal right now. So that's what gotcha. we're working towards. So just does 3000, does that just cover your living expenses or is that with money left over? That is living expenses, a little bit of savings. So like saving for like all of our, we do sinking funds. So Dave Ramsey recommends setting aside money throughout the year to save for like Christmas or mm-hmm. your car insurance premiums. If mm-hmm. you guys aren't familiar with that. So essentially taking, like if you know Christmas is once a year in December, you take how much you want at Christmas, say it's $1,000 and you divide by 12. That's how you decide how much money you set aside. So that includes all of our sinking funds. Um, But that would cover not a lot extra. The challenge is we have two mortgages right now because we bought a like hunting property as well last year. So that's one of our land purchases. So we're a little mortgage heavy, but yeah. Cool. All right. So yeah, I was going to ask you about your primary residence. Do you rent your primary residence or do you own it? Um, So right now we're like between primary residences. So I have like two until we figure out what we're doing with this one. Um, So we recently um, bought a house hack. And so that will become primary residence. And then we have another house we bought as a live-in flip. And so we bought it knowing it needed some repairs and some remodeling. We decided to live there for a few years and then we're going to move on from that. And we haven't decided whether we want to sell it or if we're going to keep it and rent it. Um, We kind of impulse bought it because we really needed a place to live. Don't ever buy houses under pressure. And so it was (laughs) 118,000 and it probably rents for like $985 to $1,000 a month. And so it doesn't really hit our criteria. And we know we can do a lot better than that now that we've done this for a while, but that was one of our first investment-ish purchases. And so the market's really hot. So honestly, I think we'd be better off selling it right now. Hmm. Um, Okay. We could rent it. It would just be kind of a dud as a rental. It's not terrible, but it's not exciting either. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So you're trying to first get to $3,000 a door to cover your living expenses what is your long-term goal and what, I guess, portfolio value are you trying to get to where you don't have to work or you get the option of not working if you don't want to? Right. So I, I mean, I think our ultimate goal, I've always wanted 3 million is like my goal (laughs) number. That's just always been in my mind as something I want. Um, I've talked to a lot of like family members that have similar lifestyles as I would kind of want where you can go on vacation or you can buy like a vacation property or have like a lake house or a beach house or something like that in retirement. And that's kind of what I've aimed for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having some really nice frank conversations with family, we've been fortunate we can pick some brains of some people that have had similar lifestyles. And so that's kind of always in my head. I think our true like FI number is probably more like 1.5 million. We're not, we're not quite on the 3 million spendy level. We're pretty frugal and we don't, you know, drive new cars and we're not really living lavishly by any means, but um, to have the flexibility somewhere in there would be the dream. Um, But really it's an income goal right now. So however many properties it takes us to hit, you know, to replace my income, we'd need $6,000 a month. So cool. Cool. um, And we can live off one income, but again, like that's not doing anything super fun. 
So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I was going to ask you. So how, let, let's talk through the math on this and how someone that's interested in financial independence and wants to do what you're doing, how they figure out how much they need to have saved to reach their goal. I do it the really boring way. So some people like like very intense math and we can talk through it both ways. But I'm like, I look at my budget that I do monthly and say, how much does it take me to live? And what would I like to be doing? If I want to buy $1,000 in clothes every month, I'm going to need a lot more money than if I, you know, can live off $100 in spending money. And so literally, I do a budget. I do it with every dollar, which is Dave Ramsey's software. Um, you need a budget or YNAB is also really good if you're... Do you guys budget still? Or I, do my, the, I, I do my budget in Excel. Okay. I was going to say, I was yeah. gonna say, are you still an Excel person? A lot of real estate oh, yeah. people love Excel. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I mean, I know you have your MBA, so they just beat <laughs> Excel into your head. They do. Throughout, <laughs> throughout your business degrees and stuff. And then I actually taught finance on the college level for a couple of years. And I, I taught a lot of stuff in Excel. So yep. Excel to me is free and easy. So that's what I use. But I, I, I would love for you to talk about the tools you're using otherwise and how people can find those. Right. So every dollar is through Dave Ramsey. So it's just everydollar.com. It's a free budgeting tool. I've done the paid version, but honestly, bank security is increasing. So a lot of times when you automatically, the paid version, you, they sync your bank account. Mm-hmm. But I constantly have problems with my bank account staying synced because of all the like security upgrades banks are doing. So mm-hmm. it's very annoying on the budget side because you just want everything to automatically import. But it also means your bank is safe. So there's cool. a perk because a lot of people have the same problems with personal capital. I don't know if you use that, but that's also, I like yeah. live off on personal capital okay. as well to track net worth. Um, but yeah, tell, every dollar is a really good budgeting tool. <laughs> tell, tell us about personal capital and, and how people can find and use that, what that does. Yeah. So personal, so every dollar or YNAB or the budgeting side. So it's like the day-to-day kind of like your mean potatoes, I guess. I'm from mm-hmm. the Midwest. <laughs> um, we like mean potatoes here as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> so that's kind of like your core. And that's really how you figure out what it takes for you to live and how what you're truly spending and makes you be honest with yourself is the day-to-day budget. But I think seeing where you are and where you're going and kind of where you've been over the years is tracking your net worth. And that's kind of your gut check to say, where are we going? Are we trending upward? Could I be doing better? Am I hitting my goals? Um, and so personal capital, I use to track my net worth because you can, um, you can actually manually do all of your retirement accounts and bank accounts in there and all of your properties. And so network cool. is a really good metric to track. And so, yeah, personal capital is my favorite because they make all the pretty graphs and charts. Mm. Um, my favorite thing they have is a fee, um, analyzer. So if you can link your retirement accounts, it'll tell you how many years off your retirement nest egg you're losing to fees. And that's like by far my mm. favorite thing because it's free and you can see, like, I think I was losing like five or six years off of my retirement when I originally got into personal capital and realized expense ratios are a really big deal. They and are, yeah. now like I'm losing like less than a year and I feel what, pretty proud are of you, that. <laughs> are you, um, are you using index funds to like Vanguard or something? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we do index funds and in all of our 401ks. And then I have a couple like rolled over IRAs also. Yeah. That are yeah all so, funds. so all you real estate investors who don't really do the stock market much, or let's say you invest in real estate, but you have a, you know, 401k or whatever, there are fees that your, your 401k administrator, you know, if this is through work or whatever, there are fees that the funds that you're invested in are charging you you can go look at the prospectus and see what these fees are. Oftentimes they're much higher than you would think they are. Even if they're 2% or 1%, you can go over to a place like Vanguard. There's other offerings as well. 
Um, I'm not getting paid by Vanguard to say this. Um, yeah. You can go over to like Vanguard and pay a fraction of 1% to get to buy index funds and have access to the same type investments. And so it's really paying 10% or 10 times more over here for the same thing than over here. So it's like, why would you go pay 10 times more? Because all that's going to do is drag on your overall returns. And when you compound these returns over the course of 20, 30 years, to Sarah's point, it's going to, it's going to affect your real, real, your retirement nest egg overall. And you're not going to be able to retire as early or have the same amount of money there to live off of. So it's something to really pay attention to. Look at the fees that you're being charged and because it's a big deal. So it's yeah. really smart to track that, Sarah. Um, all yeah. right, so, fees are like my nemesis. So yeah. like go look at your expense ratios and they matter. So like, yeah. I like Vanguard. I also like Fidelity. So we'll give a shout out yeah. since we're not sponsored. We'll give another yeah. one. Um, yeah, Fidelity's their good fees too. are probably like, it'll be like 0.0 something. Yeah. And that's how you really know you have an index fund is it should be like 0.05 or 0.03. And the yeah. hard part is, financial advisors will sit there and say, oh, I just charge like a 1% flat rate. But that actually has a really big impact because I think as people that aren't like not people are really hard with numbers. I think fractions are tricky because like 1% sounds really low, but in reality, it's a big deal on your end number. You say you're getting a 7% return. Well, if you subtract that, you know, 1% fee off of there, you're, you know, you're diminishing pretty quickly. And so that adds up to years lost. So fees yeah. suck. Go check your expense ratios. Yeah, Read a the, couple books. <laughs> the, the 1% is not just off the profit, right? right? The 1% is off the portfolio value. So yeah. if you've got, you know, if you've got $100,000 in there, they're taking a thousand bucks when Vanguard would be taking a hundred bucks. So, yeah. I mean, that's a big deal. $900 compounding over 30 years at 7% a year turns into a lot of money. And mm -hmm. so when you say you change that number from a hundred thousand to a million or three million, it turns into a real a lot of money, and that's why investment advisors get wealthy off of what they're doing. And there, I think there is a place for those guys. There's mm -hmm. some people who have not the foggiest notion how to buy an index fund, and would literally do something stupid and waste all their money trying to do everything themselves. They don't want to educate themselves on the process. I get it. I think I think the investment advisors are well suited to help people like that. And I think there is a time and place to be paid for that service. My thing is, if you can do it yourself and you're willing to learn how to do it, it, it would be responsible to look at the fees you're being charged and save yourself all that money. You don't have to be paying somebody else. So, um, so anyway, let's the talk real about real estate people. I think this is like my phase two plan because mm -hmm. I don't like to withdraw off of my portfolio, like out of my retirement accounts and mm -hmm. my IRAs and even like a brokerage account. I just don't like touching the money that I've set aside sure. and you shouldn't want to. Sure. So I was thinking about that as like my phase two. So I have a little backup nest egg in case, you know, something crazy happens with real estate, but you know, real estate is kind of the safer bet for like income and track my monthly number. And then I have, you know, in retirement, it'll be a little extra cushy because we'll have all of that. Yeah. And if I suddenly decide I hate real estate and want to sell everything, I have this second plan in place. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about your strategy here. Like what, what mix of your wealth do you have in stocks what mix do you have allocated towards real estate? What do you have in cash? What's your game plan here? I'm very, very low on cash right now. Okay. It's kind of terrifying. All of the like debt-free community people who follow my account would probably be like crying a bit in the corner somewhere <laughs> if they knew how little on cash we were um, because we've just been chucking it into our houses trying to get them up. Um, we got a little ambitious with a lot of fixer-uppers back-to-back. Um, 
Let me log into my personal capital. I mean, honestly, cash is probably like 3% of our portfolio right now. Real estate is most of our net worth. And then our retirement accounts are like, our retirement accounts are probably like a little less than half. Okay. The real estate is probably 50%, 60%. Our investments are probably like 40 to 48%. And then cash is... Sure. And we have vehicles in there too. Yeah. So. so let's talk about let's talk about why you're putting sixty percent of your wealth in the real estate bucket and how you're going about doing that. Yeah. So most of it's going to real estate because I can get a better rate of return and I have more control over it. Um, and so that's kind of my now plan. Um I also think that investing in index funds and things is kind of a long-term game. So right now we're just doing enough to get our match. So you're getting the free money and just a little bit extra. So we have a nest egg in retirement waiting for us. Mm-hmm. But really real estate is where we want to go because we know we can do a better rate of return than what the stock market will give us if we're hitting a 1% real property or better. Yeah. And so in our market, I'm finding like 1% to 1.4% rural properties. Um so let's talk MLS, about let's let's so. talk about that. there's probably somebody listening that doesn't know what the one percent rule yes. is. Tell us what so that your one percent rule is. Your rent for your property should be one percent or better than your purchase price. So say you have a hundred thousand dollar house, your rent should be a thousand dollars or better. Yep. And so it's pretty straightforward. Essentially, you just kind of like I don't know. I'm back in the day when you like moved the zero like two bunny hops over to get your rent number. <laughs> so if you mm-hmm. see the purchase price of a house is like two hundred thousand. $2,000 rent is what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we talked earlier about like our primary residence being pretty crappy as a rental. And so we paid 118. So in reality, we need to get $1,180 a month in rent to have that deal make sense. And I think that's a little steep where our house is at right now. Um, I'm sure we could find someone to buy it, but it'd be a bit of a challenge. And so we've thought about maybe putting it up for rent and seeing if we get takers or deciding to unload it. And so that's kind of our baseline mm-hmm. because we have a couple other properties where we're getting, you know, well above that number. So we sure. have one that we bought for 64,000, put like 6,000 into it and it rents for 985. Yep. And that's yep. by far our best property. Yeah. And we've talked about the rent ratio on my podcast, number of episodes, but the rent ratio works in a sliding scale, right? When you buy in a really great neighborhood, let's say the let's say the average sales price in that neighborhood. I'm I'm using numbers here in Huntsville, right? Let's say the average sales price is five hundred thousand um, dollars. That property may rent for twenty five hundred. That is a 05 percent rent ratio. That's not even not nearly one percent. That's not going to cash flow for you, and you can see it with that rent ratio. If you rent. And then let's say you go into a lower end area. So we'll call that first one A class. Let's say you go into a C class neighborhood. You may be able to buy a property for $80,000 and it may rent for $1,400. So you're going to have a much better than 1% rent ratio on, uh, I don't know if I said, did I say that right? Buy it for $80,000, it rents for $1,400. Yeah. Yeah. Your rent ratio is going to be far above 1%. That's going to cash flow nicely for you. But the area isn't quite as nice, right? So mm-hmm. your appreciation in that area may not be as good as the Class A area, but you can't you can't pay your monthly bills with appreciation unless you sell or refinance. So the trick is, I think the balance is finding appreciation while you have the cash flow profit there that you need to cover your bills and get the, the value per door that you need. And so 
our strategy, and there's a lot of different strategies, our strategy is to be, has been to buy in areas where we can get $200 profit per door after all operating expenses and our debt service. And we're, we've got money in there for reserves, repairs, all that stuff, 200 bucks a door or more. And areas we believe based on trends in those areas will appreciate nicely and outpace inflation. So I'm getting the appreciation. I'm getting the cash flow, pro, the profit per month. If you're not getting the profit per month, and you're just going on appreciation, you can get yourself in trouble because if your cash flow, even or negative, it sets you up. If something happens, some little thing in the market happens or your property has repairs or vacancy issues or whatever, you're coming out of pocket, coming out of your reserves to pay that month's rent. And so some people will say, um, only just, just invest for cash flow. Just invest for cash flow. I don't believe that's necessarily the best advice out there. I think you need to look at where your properties are located as well get cash flow and appreciation. You can have both of them. I don't know why you would settle for only cash flow and sacrifice the appreciation part of this whole thing because the appreciation part is going to make you very wealthy. So think through that. But you got to have the cash flow piece there as well. Don't just get appreciation because how are you going to pay your bills with that? So, mm-hmm. um, And you okay. kind of had some advantages there because you did like your appraising. So you kind yeah. of got to look in your market. And I think that's a hard thing for like people that are newer in real yep. estate trying to figure out is just... You know, I think before, I wish I would have analyzed deals longer so I could have figured out my market and where it's appreciating, appreciating or not. Yeah. yeah. Because that's such a good point is if you can do both, that's kind of the dream because, yeah. you know, we're trying to get to financial independence. So really cash flow is our number one. But also if I have the option of a cash flowing house that will appreciate and then another neighborhood that isn't, then I need to make better choices there. Yeah. And so... Definitely and to pay attention to, which is very wise words too. Yeah, yeah. And well, and there are a number of, there are quantitative and qualitative things you can look at to figure out where these areas are. So quantitatively, you could look at the unemployment rate, uh, the average income of a family in that area, you know, things like that. Okay. Property value appreciation over the last 10 years. You could see kind of what's going on. Notice, notice trends in that data. Okay. Qualitatively, You could get in your car and drive around your city and look at where the development's going on, where they're bulldozing houses and building new houses, look at the schools, look at the crime rate, look at things like that. That's going to give you a good idea of areas that would be good to hold on to and hang on to. And a lot of times fringe areas on really good areas, fringe areas of the good areas are great because you can get in at a really good price, they'll cash flow and that the good area right next to that is going to push that value up in those areas. So those are really good spots. If you're trying to figure out where to buy, those are really good spots to look at primarily. And sometimes you'll buy in the worst neighborhood and something will happen. And that area, you know, a developer developer will come in and just buy a whole neighborhood out and just bulldoze all the houses, build, you know, condos or whatever. Sometimes you'll buy a $40,000 house and the land will be worth 400,000 in, in 10 years. But on average, that's not everyone's experience, but you can get great cash flow in bad areas, but you're also going to have more headaches with, with managing the tenants, more eviction issues, more repairs, probably that kind of stuff than you would in a much nicer area. But your cash flow is not going to be nearly as good in the nice areas on average. Uh, there mm-hmm. are exceptions to all these rules. But okay, so you're wanting $3,000. So how many door or, or $3,000 a month initially? So how many doors do you need to get to $3,000 a month? Probably six. Okay. I think that's our number. So if six paid for, I should say. Six so we'd paid probably for. Need, okay. We'd need more if they weren't paid off, but that's kind of okay. the goal is 
pumping okay. the brakes when we hit six and paying okay. off what we have. Okay. So, so what's your game plan to get there? How did you get to six and how are you going to get those paid off? What's the strategy? So we've done two live in flips now. And okay. so that kind of started things. I feel like the first one was like an accidental, like we lived in there and kind of remodeled it before we really thought about selling it. Um, and then we decided we want to be closer to friends, family work. And so we decided to move. And so this house was a nicer house on five acres And so I somehow convinced my husband that we should sell this house and buy like a little postage stamp in town and then another little postage stamp in town and buy two properties. One would be our first rental and one would be a new primary residence that we would turn and rent. And so we bought two houses in like a month of each other to be our first rental. And so the, that one was actually our second purchase, I guess, was the, the first one was the 118. That's our postage stamp in town that we're living in. And then the next one was pretty much a turnkey rental. That's probably one of our like easiest properties. We've done the least rehab in that one. Okay. Okay. So to get six paid for properties, Mm -hmm. what's your game plan? How are you going to, how are you going to go from where you are to having six that are paid for and how long is it going to take you? Um, I need to run the numbers again because everything's kind of changing with this house hack that we didn't expect to be doing. And so really taking the properties we have right now and getting them all up and rented. So uh, some people that follow me have known that like our duplex is totally vacant right now, which is ridiculous. Um, And so (laughs) we're trying to get that up and running and kind of getting that through. And so we have a totally vacant duplex. And so the goal is by like 2021 to have both sides up and running. And so we bought like an extreme fixer. Like we literally tore the entire roof rafters, everything off one side Mm -hmm. and like put a new roof on it it needs new HVAC. It's like a very ambitious project. Mm -hmm. And so we've decided to hire it out. And so that will be a much less of a burden now that we have kids and things, just doing things a little bit differently and trying to get some systems in place so we can continue to scale. And so I think once we get that property knocked out, we'll have a better idea. Um, And then attacking the first property first. Um, So right now we have three properties on a portfolio loan. And so I think we'll do that first. So kind of the debt snowball, but almost like a debt avalanche of properties is what we'll do. So focusing on one loan at a time, using all the cash flow that we're producing off all the properties to pay off a loan. And then once those are paid off, then we apply that money to the next loan until they're all kind of paid off. So kind of rolling yeah. that snowball. So kind of like Dave Ramsey roots, but applied to real estate. Is I our- like it. I like it. So do you <laughs> buy six and then start trying to pay the first one off? Or do you yep. pay your three off and then try to go get three more? Or how are you... Yeah. So that's the plan. So we have, yeah, so we have our one rental that we bought the duplex, which is our two units. We bought another one in the fall. So we've only been doing this since 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, And then duplex now. So we're at, we could be at six doors if we, once we figure out what we're doing with the $118,000 questionable house that we have. Okay. Um, And so pausing right now would be the ideal and then paying off all the things we have. And so. Cool. I mean, it'll go pretty quick once we get everything going. I haven't ran the amortization schedules because this property, the house hack is pretty new. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay. hoping like under five years. So a couple things that will help people be able to do this for themselves. Um, how much per door, how much per door are you making profit wise on the portfolio you have right now? If everything were rented at market rents, we'll say the duplex is rented. How much per door profit would you be making net of operating expenses and debt service? Um, almost $2,000 all paid for or just if everything was up and running? Just if everything were up and running and rented. Mm-hmm. 
I have a spreadsheet for that one moment. Okay. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we'll digress for a minute <laughs> until I pull up my, I actually thought I'm like, I should totally have spreadsheets up in case you ask me more technical questions because I think we'll be about $3,000. Okay. Uh, let's just call it, let's just call it 3000. Let's say, okay? let's say it's 3000. Let's say it's 3000. So your cheapest property. So using the Dave Ramsey debt snowball, if, if you're not familiar with Dave Ramsey, what he says is to stack up your debts, smallest to largest. And by the way, those of you who have debts you need to get rid of, you can do this. Stack up your debt, smallest to largest and start throwing every bit of extra income you can at the smallest one. Get rid of that one first and then move on to the second, the next, the next biggest until you've paid off everything and you're working on your largest last, right? And the reason yep. for this, he says, is because you want to focus and gain some momentum for yourself with your snowball. If, if you look at the interest rates on everything, you may find out that the interest rate on your smallest is not the same as the interest rate on your middle property or whatever and say, why wouldn't I work on my middle one first? Well, his logic is you need small wins to build up some momentum as you go. So in this scenario, Sarah would start working on her, this, the, the smallest debt she has on one of her properties first. And Sarah, how much is that? Um, so the hard part about ours is we lumped three properties together in a portfolio okay, loan. That's right, and you said so that. probably our our portfolio loan is about $186,000 total and then for three houses and then our primary residence that will probably become a rental is about we've about I think 90,000 in debt on that one. So that would be our first one. Okay. And then the house cool. hack was a little more expensive of a purchase because it's on a really good area, but it's two yeah. units, so that'll be last. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So in this scenario, then you would take your, your primary residence of 90, pay it off first. Then you said mm -hmm. the duplex was how much? Um, the duplex was 95. Okay. So then you next pay the duplex off and then last yeah. you'd pay the portfolio loan off. Then yeah. you would have a debt-free portfolio. It's going to open up the cash flow a lot. You're still going to have operating expenses and stuff, but um, once these were all paid for, how much would you have after operating expenses on these properties? Um, our cash flow would be probably a little, like almost 4,000 a month. Okay. At that so, point. so 4,000 a month. So that's going to be above your 3,000, the 3,000 that you need. So you're going to be able to pay yep. all your living expenses per month plus $1,000 left over. Okay. So how are you going to get from there to your 3 million? That's a good question. <laughs> I was just curious. Well, I think right now we're pretty automated on our retirement side that we yeah. should reach our number. And so essentially okay. I run, it's like a Monte Carlo simulation, but essentially yeah. personal capital does all your analyses for you and says, if you invest like X amount per month, in addition to this real estate income, you'll hit your, you know, target retirement number. And so the 3 million goal, I think we're already pretty much on target to hit that. We might have to up that a little bit. So right now we trim down how much we're putting in our traditional retirement accounts to just a little bit above the match. So I'd probably bump that up to like the Dave Ramsey 15% mm -hmm. um, to feel a little more warm and fuzzy inside about that and kind of have that be our phase two. Okay. Um, but then again, like once we're done building our core portfolio, I want to keep scaling up a bit and get to probably like 10 or 12 properties would be the ideal. Um, just because... I like the idea of covering our core expenses, but also we know down the road, if we both put our jobs, healthcare is a cost that comes in there. And we haven't factored that into any of the budgets because I have a full-time job that has really good healthcare. Yeah. Um, I have no intentions of leaving my job, but That's again, what I was going to ask you is it's an option. Yeah. So, so when you're running these Monte Carlo simulations, what is your holding period? Like what's your time period to have that 3 million? 55. 
55. Okay. Mm-hmm. So and there's a very, if people don't know, there's a rule of 55 and there's a reason for that number. So okay, I will, let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my goal is to leave my like traditional employment at the age of 55, maybe earlier if I want to pay for my own healthcare, but I like my job and I like my field that I'm in a lot. And so I like the idea of at least being, you know, full-time, maybe even like part-time or like a, we do it in FTEs in healthcare. So full-time is like a one FTE. I'd love to be like at a 0.7 or 0.8. So you still get like full benefits, but I'm not working 40 hours a week. Um, but I think that'd be kind of the goal is working towards that. And so the 55, there's a rule of 55 that says at that age, I could retire from my current job and I can take without penalty out of my retirement accounts from that particular employer and use that to live off of. And so it's an exception around the like waiting for the 65 and a half mm. um, point where if you, if I retire at 55, if I either am fired or leave, um, I can access my retirement accounts without hitting that like early withdrawal penalty from that off job. Cool. Well, and let's talk about, um, uh, you mentioned off, off this, uh, recording yeah. that you were, you got into Mr. Money Mustache. I did the same. Really enjoy a lot of his stuff. Um, the 4% rule. Let's talk about that. And 4% rule of thumb off your portfolio value. Why 4%? And why, so this $3 million, how much income are you expecting to have off of that 3 million to live on? That's a good question. The 3 million is a really basic. So I think I needed, I reckon calculators so handy all right because i think i wanted like sixty thousand to live off of Mm -hmm. yeah so 1.5 million is really my fi number because i wanted about sixty thousand dollars a year to live off of and so that one's pretty easy so if i want to live off of sixty thousand dollars a year if you multiply that by 25 there's a rule of 25 it's 1.5 million um and so that rule's based off of you know these philosophies of this four percent rule so essentially this you know, safe withdrawal rate is 4%. So essentially if I save up a nest egg of 1.5 million and I, I can safely withdraw 4% off of that to live off of over, you know, the rest of my lifetime and I should never run out of money is really the 4% rule. So there's tons of studies on this concept that say, you know, is it 4%? Is it 3%? There's lots of studies, but essentially historically, if you look at what the stock market has done over time, a 4% withdrawal rate off of that number should be a safe place to be even in down markets or up markets. You can pull off your nest egg and never worry about running out of money. So I think real estate is kind of the cushion that I use to, you know, buffer that a little bit because obviously it scares you a little bit when you see the markets drop like it did in 2020 with coronavirus. Um, But again, that's built in there because we're looking at historic S and P 500 returns over time. And so it's already built into that 4% rule. So people shouldn't be freaking out, but it's very interesting to see how the responses in the fire community have been through all this. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet, I bet there's been a lot of interesting things written lately over yeah. all this. Cause, uh, and you always got to, like, I always think about the people who have worked so hard and gotten to the end of their journey, maybe a year away. And I know you're going to diversify out of stocks into more bonds and whatnot, but, when everything drops and you're so near retirement, being able to live off that nest egg, it could be, it could be a really hard hit because you don't have so many years to recover. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, but thankfully the markets have, have gone back up. I just hope people didn't sell while it was down, but, um, but anyway, yeah, this is, this is all super interesting. And I love the 4% rule. 
I've read a lot mm-hmm. about this. I think it's so fascinating that, you know, in a nutshell, all these studies have shown if you'll if you'll withdraw 4% on your portfolio, and that's a combination of dividend payments as well as mm-hmm. selling. And you can automate this in your portfolio where it's selling selling off 2% of your portfolio yearly and you're getting 2% in dividends. So you, there's your 4%. If you can automate this and keep it at 4% or less, the portfolio is going to grow in perpetuity. And so you're not worried about spinning the nest egg, the, the, mm-hmm. killing the goose that's laying the golden eggs, right? Right. So um, yeah, I really love that. And, and there's so... I, Another thing about FI is I love is there's so many ways to get there. And I put a post on Instagram yesterday, like you don't have to follow Sarah's path exactly to get (laughs) FI and Sarah doesn't have to follow Mr. Money Mustache path uh, to get FI, but and everybody can get there. There's different ways of doing it. There's some ways that work better than others, but you know, I know real estate investors who are loading the truck on real estate. They don't have any money in the stock market. And their game plan is to sell half their portfolio halfway through the holding period, liquidate everything, put their millions in an index fund and live off the 4%. It works, right? Um, Mm -hmm. What you're doing works as well. Get your match, put your match in, let your employer pay for your health insurance, cut costs, live below your means and invest the money wisely. Um, Dave Ramsey works as well. Live debt free, never use leverage on real estate, buy your real estate in cash. There's a number of different ways to do this. So I don't want somebody to think if you're not using leverage to buy real estate, that you're doing things wrong. It's just a mm-hmm. different way of doing things. Different people have different risk appetites and, and mm-hmm. risk tolerance. And so you got to figure out what you're comfortable with, but don't not think on it. Like don't yeah. sit back and not come up with a plan at all because that's going to not help you in the long run. And there's a lot of people that get to 75 and they don't have any money saved mm-hmm. and they're doing the social security thing. And, you know, there's been a lot of things written about Social Security for people my age. When we get there, what that's going to look like, we don't know. But I don't want to leave, leave that up to the, my retirement up to the government personally. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, this, is, this has been awesome. So tell us. Um, I would say too, so to buy our properties in case people are sitting there wondering how we, yeah. because we bought them in like October of 2018 is when we started and it's 2020. And now we're up to, yeah. you know, we bought three rentals and then this house hack um, and a hunting property also. And so that's just like super saving our income. So we save, we live on one income and save the rest and literally push every extra dollar we can squeeze out of the budget into real estate. Um, We're also pretty spendy. um, So we have to have like pretty high incomes to live how we live. So like, I'm like the anti Mr. Money mustache where I'm like not frugal. Um, and I'm also like not riding my bike to work because I'd be like all sweaty and gross. (laughs) Um, So thank goodness I work from home. But I think that's part of like the, I was talking the stealthy rich a little bit where they talk about like their secret sauce of their portfolio. And we really think like a work from home job for one person is probably really important to have the flexibility to do what we're doing. Um, The other thing is I worked really, really hard to get the cost of gas down and like auto costs because like car, everything is like the vein of my existence. It just like sucks a big part of your budget out because you have like repairs and maintenance and tires and, Hopefully you don't have a car on payments if you do get rid of that. Um, but you have like registration, license plates, insurance. It's just such a big cost for auto. Um, so I actually found a job where I get a car with that. Wow, um, cool. So I'm I'm partly a travel job. So that's kind of one of the ways we've reduced expenses. Um, but it's like jobs I never thought existed out there. But when you start looking, you can find them that kind of align with the lifestyle you're trying to build. 
So like not owning a car is also a really good way, but I'm not doing it like the bike riding way. I did it through the type right. of job I could find. Right. And, so. and this is a great point. This is something I was going to ask you about. There's, there's really two ways to come up with cash to, to build your financial future and financial independence. One is increasing your income. The second is decreasing your expenses, right? So there's a lot of stuff written out there about decreasing expenses, um, about, you know, do a no spend year. I don't know if you've done that or not. Yeah, and with that, have you not. done that? You I do no okay. spend months and I always fail terribly. Yeah, I'm really, yeah, yeah. I'm a spender. So, it's terrible. I try. <laughs> well, well, and I, I think again, going back to this, like you got to go your own way. I don't know that the no spend year thing works for everybody because mm-hmm. some people it's going to demoralize them to the point that they give up altogether. And that's not going to work. That's not going to help them reach their FI goal, right? So mm-hmm. it's really knowing yourself and how to motivate yourself and, and keep yourself on track to reach your goal. So this is just me, okay? Yeah. If, I, if I love Starbucks coffee, I realize that Starbucks is overpriced, right? Mm-hmm. But if Starbucks, if, if a cup of Starbucks coffee every day keeps me on my FI goal and I'm, I, can, I can check all these other boxes off, I think that's a good investment in myself, right? If cutting Starbucks out of my life makes me go home and sit in a dark room in total depression because I, I no longer have the thing I love, that wasn't a good decision for me, right? Now, somebody else may could take or leave Starbucks and they can do coffee at home. It's no big deal. They may save $2.50 a cup. It's fine, right? You got to figure out what it is for you that's going to keep you on that track. Cut everything else. Cut all the frivolous stuff away that you can. Like if it's cars, some people are car people and I'm like, okay, I'm not a car person. I, I am don't a care. car person. It kills I, yeah. your soul a little bit, but then yeah. you're like, wow, this car is also ruining my life. <laughs> right, exactly. So so it's like figuring out figuring out what it is you, you need to keep you motivated and going and what you can give up and being mm-hmm. willing to really, really, really like challenge yourself to cut to the point that you can make these positive life changes financially. So like, but I think the thing that's, that's more ignored is how to increase income because mm-hmm. if you increase your income 100% and you, you know, and you cut expenses just a tad, you're way ahead. If mm-hmm. you cut expenses 50%, but don't increase your income at all, you're not, you're not as ahead as you would be in scenario A. So one way to really help your financial picture is is increasing your income from the current job you're in, finding a way to add income on the side, one, your spouse going back to work or whatever it is, like get your income up, cut expenses at the same time. And it's like having a property that's got cash flow and appreciation going at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's double whammy, right? But yep. if you're only cutting expenses and not increasing income when you could, you may be missing a really great opportunity to, to grow your wealth. Uh, really supercharge that. So I think people look at their, like so many fixed things is fixed. Like their income is a fixed expense. Your housing is a fixed expense. And it drives me nuts because it makes you not even think creatively about how to fix your fixed expenses. Um, And it drives me a little insane because I'm like, your income is such a big deal. And, you know, it's hard because people will kind of, there's all the naysayers that don't quite understand like the path into financial independence than how you're kind of working towards a lifestyle versus money. And so you can seem really money focused, but again, like you're buying a lifestyle and kind of a a way of living in the future. And so at the moment you can focus on income if you want, if that's a big priority to you and getting that up and income was such a big changer for us. I've, Mm -hmm. I've doubled my income since I left grad school. Yeah. So that's great. Um, yeah, yeah finally that's what hit I was that number. It's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's what I was yeah. going to ask you. I don't in the I same field, and you just hunt. 
you hunt and you apply for reach jobs. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I, I don't care to know how much your family is bringing in, but what I would be interested in knowing is how much above your living exp- or, or what what level of income are you able to save and apply to this goal per month? Um, right now we're kind of all over the place. So okay. just on average for the month, year, would you say what, what for the year can you save or, or apply oh, towards this financial independence question. goal? Just generally, um, you don't so, have to be dead on I'm trying to think probably like four to six grand a month is what we're saving. Okay. Okay. Around Very that good. level. So we'll say five grand um, it on average. It's been a really weird year with coronavirus. My husband's laid off. And then all of a sudden being laid off made you more money than you were making before maybe. <laughs> and so it's been like, I'm just that's like, our, uh, that's a really complicated question. That's our government for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we were around, I know we saved up about as much money in 2019 as like a Ford Raptor. So that's like the really big like schmancy Ford truck. And so I think we were almost at a hundred thousand dollars for last year. Wow. Um, saved that's great. and that all went into real estate. And so that's great. But that took a long time of we're going to live in a postage stamp house. We're going to, I'm going to not own a car. We're going to take a job that lets us do that. We're going to drive a 2014 for our other vehicle and we're going to save. And yeah. that's with a baby in full-time childcare. Granted we're in Indiana. Indiana helps a lot or living in a rural area, Midwest. Um, yep does help because my child care is $150 a week, which is really, really reasonable compared to a lot of areas in the world. Um, but also not unattainable for a lot of people probably listening. And so a lot of it is, you know, people always look for ways to get motivated. And I think that's the wrong question. You have to make yourself disciplined because motivation goes away. Like there's some days where I just wake up unmotivated, but you have to have the discipline to be like, okay, but Sarah tomorrow will really be glad that I didn't buy $200 on Amazon. But, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so developing this self-discipline and knowing that your goals matter more and maybe like posting them around your office. I'm a big fan of like, I have post-it notes. Like, yeah. Um, So this is something I, keeping aligned on your goals. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Keeping, keeping on your goals is a big deal and like laser focus and getting that momentum there. And this is something I wanted to run through real quick on here. Just, just to show people the power of real estate and the power of leverage and the power of living below your means. So Sarah's family saved $100,000 last year. Let's just play like you didn't use the Burr strategy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You just went and put 20% down on properties with that money. Right. You would have $500,000 of properties. Let's mm-hmm. just say you did that two years, okay? So you've got a million dollars in properties. And let's say you bought in areas like we were talking about earlier that are going to outpace inflation. Let's say on average, you get 3.5% appreciation a year. Okay. So I'm going to look at what this turns into. So five years, at five years, you'd have 1.2 million. At at 10 years, you'd have 1.4. At 15 years, 1.6, you could do this in Excel, do a future value calculation real quick, but I'm doing it on my calculator on my phone. So so at 20 years, you've got 2 million, all right? And if you put these on 15-year notes, they're already paid off. Um, let's let's take it out to 3 million. I think we're more 80,000 savings for the year, but 100,000 yeah. is a nice happy yeah. round number. <laughs> so say 21, 22, 23, 24, mm-hmm. 25. So around, you know, around 25, 26 years, you would have 3 million bucks. And this doesn't include at all the profit coming off the cash flow. 
So let's, I, I would, I would guess in 15 years when you're socking away all the profit from the cash flow as well, if you just took a hundred thousand dollars a year for the next two years and bought yourself $500,000 of properties each year in 15 mm-hmm. years, you could sell all your real estate and have your 3 million bucks in your index fund and not have yep. to mess with real estate or work anymore if you didn't want to. You got your FI number. And so that's how you can use real estate to back in and, and hit these goals. And there's different ways to do it. You could buy an apartment complex all at once. The second year, buy, you know, put your 200 grand into one apartment complex, just mess with one property, or you could do these through single family. There's a ton of different ways to do this stuff, but, um, but really making progress is the goal, right? So mm-hmm. Sarah, this has been awesome. Um, tell us- I hope are there this any- helps people too, because it's, oh, yeah. it's really hard. And I think- yeah. Back when I was making, I mean, when I was fresh out of grad school, I was making like $63,000. And at that stage in the game, I couldn't even imagine saving as much as we save. Like my husband was talking about quitting his job and I was just like hyperventilating in the corner because I didn't know how we were going to pay our like over $1,000 a month in car payments and this motorcycle we had to have and just like ridiculous things we did. And so I think it's, it's very easy to get caught up in like the big shiny numbers, but like literally it's just like nose to the grindstone. I'm going to try to get my income up. I'm going to find jobs that still like bring me joy, but also get me further in what I want to do personally, because I've learned quickly that jobs can come and go pretty quick. And I think coronavirus has taught us that where I'd rather build a lifestyle I want. And I will do that as I climb the ladder and try to get more income because that's how you get out of the rat race essentially. But yeah, because right now we're sitting at about $600,000 in mortgages. So yeah. yeah, that'd be really close to that number. So yeah, it's kind of yeah. crazy how quickly you can scale if you're just like the day-to-day grind. I don't feel like we're doing anything weird. I don't think I'm any different really than, like, I think I was significantly more frugal in the $63,000 income days than I am now. Sure. So. Yeah. So, I mean, and let's, let's change it. Let's change the story in the scenario. Let's say, let's say you're making $40,000 a year right now let's say you're by yourself making $40,000 a year, or you even have kids, you're a single parent making $40,000 a year. You're really strapped, right? You can still go after this. You may not have as as much money to throw at this, but you can still make smart choices financially to help get yourself ahead, like living below your means, not going into car debt, not spending money on crap you don't need, and saving every penny you can and putting that into things that are going up in value. So, uh, let's say you, you're making forty grand a year, and you and you and you squirrel away five thousand dollars. Okay, the beautiful thing about this whole scenario is you can house hack. You can go get yourself a duplex or even a fourplex. Go, you know, as long as you're willing to live in a property like that, it's going to be safe for your family. Think about buying a fourplex. Mm-hmm. The other three units covering all your living expenses, and what a game changer that is for you in this scenario where you went from scraping by to now you've got your living expenses covered. Think about how much you could save in that scenario. So now you're able to save $1,000 a month. And so you squirrel away 12000 the next year. You could go get yourself another fourplex. You move into the next mm-hmm. fourplex, rent out your old unit. And this is how you stack your real estate investments. And eventually you're going to have millions of dollars there. And you're going to be able to live off that million dollars instead of, or or even live off, or build it up to $3 million and do the same thing Sarah's doing. So mm-hmm. we all don't but start... But essentially the- with your house hacks too, what I've learned, you essentially cut like your FI number in half too, if you get rid of your housing expenses and want to stay there. Um, because right now I bought like a one story ranch with a walkout basement that we're converting into like a second unit. Nice. And so it's like the non-traditional house hack. I constantly looked for, I wanted, I really wanted a garage with a 
like a unit above it. That was the dream where we wouldn't have been like attached to one another, but the walkout yeah. basement was easier to find. That's um, awesome. But I think getting out of the idea, if you have to have a duplex to house hack, if you can look for like other units or mother-in-law suites, and then yeah. you benefit in two ways. Your expenses are covered, so you can keep buying more stuff, but then also you've taken out like $1,000 out of your monthly income need. So you've crossed off like a big portion. And so your fire becomes a lot closer the more you get your housing costs down. Yeah. And um, there's different ways to avoid having to put a lot of money down on these things when you buy them. For instance, FHA, you could buy with 3.5% down. So, you and know, now you have your first real estate investment when you move on later. It's still exactly. on a conventional loan for 30 years at a really low interest rate, which yep. is a lot different than investors like real estate numbers or like yep. our interest rates you buy on investment properties are going to be about double. Yeah. So, ish. Yeah. Um, so, I love it. I love it. So, the story here is you can do this no matter where you are in life. It's going to take a different, uh, some maybe some different steps, but the key is living below your means, getting rid of bad debt, investing wisely, and things are going to go up in value. And so, yeah, Sarah, this has been awesome. Do you have any, maybe a couple tips or tricks that you've learned along the way that you think can help people accelerate this whole thing? Uh, Learning how to run deal analysis. I wish I would have started analyzing like deals off the MLS um, sooner. And I think, oh, that was what you were talking about too. That reminded me, that was my other tip that I've learned. Um, so I think practicing on the MLS in your area and learning your market, learning what houses actually sell for. So finding ways you can figure out how much property is sold for in your area without being a realtor. Sometimes there's different websites and different things you can go to and see um, like tax values or public records. And so kind of doing your due diligence and learning your market, I think is number one, even if you have zero units, like take the time to learn. Um, the other thing that we were kind of talking about is I think there's a beauty in being like in a, like under stress environment. Like if you're like the single mom with like $40,000 in income, you know, I like, you can sit here and say that I had it easier because my income was high and I have a husband and we had this income. And so we put all of our money into houses but again, like you run out of that money really, really fast when you start doing renovations. And so now we're sitting at five doors and I don't really quite know how to get it next. And so trying to figure out next steps, I think it makes you start thinking critically because we've had a lot of life changes personally on my side, which I'm going to be talking about a lot coming up. Um, but anyway, so it puts you under pressure to think, okay, let's get creative with this. And Coach Carson talks about this a lot where he thinks you know, when you don't have a lot of money to start in real estate, you honestly start doing your best deals because you think, okay, is there an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or some real estate investor I can network with on Instagram? That's how I found one of my investors is just talking to them on Instagram and saying, hey, I have this really good deal. Would you want to fund it? And so it's really, really exciting once you get networking, get out there and start you know, teaching people your models, being the most prepared person in the room, having your numbers together, love an Excel spreadsheet, but kind of letting the pressure of not having a lot of money also can make you do really awesome like seller financing deals where you can have no money into a deal, but still purchase a property. And so yeah. I think that's kind of, it makes you get creative. And so I don't want people to sit here and think that you have to have a high income to do it because I think honestly, I could probably be a lot farther if I knew the ins and outs of seller financing deeper. Yeah, but I'm really happy with where we're at, but I don't think just because you don't have money sitting there, a high income you can also do it other ways. And I think Coach Carson's a good testament to that because he was like fresh out of college and with no money and went out and started making deals and he was prepared and he was a 
honest guy. And yeah. that's how he kind of built his little empire. So, yeah, I just had a guy I interviewed on my podcast recently that's done all his deals with seller financing. Yeah. Never. And most of them are 100% seller financing. So there's ways to do this no matter where you are. And I know everybody can do it. That's what we're hoping happens. We hope this motivates and encourages yeah. everyone. And, um, Cool. Well, there, are there any books you recommend people check out on FI? Uh, I'm, I'm always a simple path to wealth person. That's my favorite book I think of all time is um, that's on index funds. Like I think that's like the one book you can read. You can set up your retirement accounts. So you can fire your financial advisor and you can do it yourself and not worry too much unless you get into like really fancy tax strategies, which make you nervous. Um, but the simple path to wealth is really easy. So if you're sitting there yep. wondering what your, what's in your 401k, that's my favorite book. Um, cool. Yeah. Who's the and then real estate, that? anything bigger pockets, honestly, is pretty good to get started. That's like the easy answer, I think. There's so many different people in real estate, but everyone has a very specific niche. So who's who's the author on the simple path to wealth? JL Collins. Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, this has been That's awesome, Sarah. Thanks so much for your time and sharing your story here. And uh, yes. I know this is gonna really motivate a lot of people. I hope so. And feel free to message me if you have any questions. I'm on there because I like talking to people about this. So yeah, tell um, us where people can can connect with you. Um, I live on Instagram, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look <laughs> at that. Um, so I'm on Instagram all the time under Nerds Guide to FI. Um, I have an email on there as well. You can always do that. But honestly, like a DM, I answer all of them. So Very I'll get cool. back with you eventually. And that's probably the easiest way to find me. Um, I have a blog and like a store and a bunch of other stuff now. But um, yeah. Very Instagram's cool. where life happens. So <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Big fan of Instagram. Uh, yes. I love, I love connecting with people on there. Well, super cool, Sarah. Thanks so much. Look forward to tracking with you on your journey and uh, yes. we'll catch you next time. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please connect with me on Instagram at daily real estate investor or via email at Josiah Smelser at gmail.com. My new book titled Dream It and Build It, How to Crush Your Real Estate Investing Goals is out. You can get it either in digital or physical format on Amazon. Once you've read the book, please leave me a review. Tune in next time for another episode of The Daily Real Estate Investor as we both join in our financial freedom journey.